Let me, let me kind of give you the game plan here. Um, we've been in Nehemiah for a few months, and you were supposed to have received three messages on Nehemiah 10, 11, 12, and 13 over these last few weeks. And now we're down to one week before Celebrate 50, and I am committed to finishing Nehemiah because I am someone who likes closure, as I'm sure you do too. So we're going to wrap up Nehemiah this morning with one message covering the last four chapters in under 40 minutes. (laughs) If you were betting people, and I know you're not, you'd be taking 20 to 1 odds that that will never happen. So here we go. First of all, a quick background. In your Old Testament, you've got these two books that used to be one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. You have it as Ezra and Nehemiah. God's people, they've been in exile for a long time, and now they're being allowed to return to Jerusalem. They've returned to a city in total disrepair because of the attacks from her enemies. The walls have been torn down, the gates have been burned, the streets are filled with so much rubble that you can't even get through the streets. But they've also returned as people who are in disrepair. Not just the city, but the people themselves. They're a huge mess. They have forsaken God's law. They are giving their sons and their daughters in marriage to godless people of the surrounding nations. They are oppressing the poor. They are not worshiping God. They haven't been bringing their tithes or their offerings. They haven't been observing the Sabbath. They're basically a huge mess. And so in Ezra, interestingly, in Ezra 1 through 6, you have the rebuilding of the temple. In Ezra 7 through 10, it's basically focusing on rebuilding the people. You go to Nehemiah, you have the exact same thing. The first six chapters are rebuilding the wall, and then 7 through 13 is rebuilding the people. And the observation for me from that is, while God is at times concerned with external structures, he is fundamentally concerned with internal issues the heart. It's always about the heart. It's always about restoring people's lives. And you know that, don't you? You can work on the outside stuff. You can work on the externals all you want. But really, the issue is my heart, whether or not I have a heart that is being worked on by the Holy Spirit and by God. And that's where, that's where God does his best work, not externally, but internally. When God was calling David to be king, He told Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, above everything else you do, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of all of the rest of your life. So when you get to chapter 10, which is where we're going to be this morning through 13, the wall's been rebuilt, the gates have been replaced with new gates, the city is coming together, kind of like maybe some of the towns and cities that have been affected by Hurricane Florence over the coming months and years. They will be rebuilding cities. Well, the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt to a large extent, but now it's about the people. Now, what you have here in chapter 10 is an account of God's people making a covenant to keep the covenant that has been a part of their lives for centuries, but which they have fallen away from. It's a covenant to keep the covenant. It's kind of like when a married couple renews their vows. They're making a renewal of the covenant to keep the vows that they perhaps made as husband and wife years and years ago. Well, here you have the people of Israel renewing 
their covenant, established by God through Abraham and then renewed through Moses. But the covenant which they had violated over and over and over again throughout history. In chapter 938, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then in chapter 10, the first 27 verses of chapter 10 is a list of all the people who, make, who, who sign the covenant, who seal the covenant. Nehemiah is at the top of the list. Then you have the priests and the Levites and the chiefs. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 10. So please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. We will not neglect the house of our God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word stands throughout the ages. It speaks to us even today words which were written centuries ago. And so we pray that you would speak to us today through your word. We place ourselves under the authority of, of Scripture. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we're talking this morning about a covenant, renewing a covenant. Now, you're all familiar with contracts, right? You've all entered into various contracts through your lives. Buy a car, you sign a contract. You buy a house, you enter into a contract. Uh, you get employed by an employer, you probably have to sign an employment contract. Um, contracts are legally binding agreements signed between two parties or more, sometimes involving negotiations back and forth. We just recently sold uh, our first original cottage up in Michigan, and uh, we listed it for a certain price, and we got an offer, and we basically said no to that offer, and, but we gave a concession, and then they came back with another offer, and then they added something else to it, and we said yes to that. There were negotiations between two parties. We've never met these people. They're from Ohio. Haven't met them. We'll probably eventually meet them at some point when we stop by just to see who's taking care of our original cottage. But uh, a contract is impersonal. 
A contract is a legally binding agreement. There's no, there's no love involved. You know, Carrollton Bank does not love me because I have our home, we have our home mortgage with them. And if we break that contract, they will come after me. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't really care about me other than the fact that I fulfill my obligation to the contract. But that's not a covenant. That's different than a covenant. We do lots of contracts, but we don't do that many covenants. A biblical covenant is fundamentally built on relationship. A biblical covenant is fundamentally based upon somebody initiating a relationship with somebody else. Now we find the first mention of covenant in the scriptures between God and Noah. God establishing a covenant with Noah. I will establish, I, see the initiative? God takes the initiative. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. You shall come into the ark you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. So there was a personal relational connection between God and Noah and his family. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17. God says, behold, my covenant is with you. You should be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name shall be Abraham. See the personal thing there? I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You move a little bit further down the road to Moses. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty, But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And then God says, I've heard their groanings. There's that personal connection. I've heard the groanings of my people because I'm in covenant with them. Deuteronomy repeats some of the elements of this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. No, you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, there's the covenant, that he swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy 14, the same thing again. One of the books that I read on sabbatical was by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. Excellent, excellent book. A little bit academic, but not so much that the vast majority of you would greatly, greatly benefit from reading it. The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. He says this about covenant. God's covenant is his sovereign. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Freely bestowed. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Freely given. Unconditional promise, I will be your God, which carries with it a multidimensional implication. Therefore, you will be my people. By contrast, a contract would be in the form, I will be your God if you will live as deserving of being my people. It is the difference between therefore and if. Conditions are written into a contract following negotiations. A covenant is made unconditionally. 
God's covenant carries implications, but none of them is the result of divine human negotiations. Now, the biblical metaphor for us that comes chiefly to mind when we think about God's covenant is what? Anybody? Marriage. The covenant of marriage. Sure. There is no conditional if clause in a marriage covenant. On the contrary, the the couple commit themselves to each other unconditionally. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish till death do us part. That's a covenant. It's not a marriage contract. It's a marriage covenant. But even the marriage covenant is an imperfect parallel because why? Because it's made between two flawed sinners who enter into a covenant with their sins and their imperfections and their baggage. But God enters into covenant with his people with perfect love, perfect holiness, perfect faithfulness. And so Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's covenant love. That's covenant love. I have loved you. I have set my love on you. Therefore, I the Lord God, have continued through thick and thin, through all of your failures, in light of all of your imperfections, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Wow. Friends, how can we ever take that lightly? Now in that same chapter, Jeremiah 31, we have the first promise of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's the new covenant promise. And so what do you find in the New Testament? You find the new covenant sealed by God. God puts his stamp on the covenant, the new covenant. What does he use to seal the covenant? the blood of his own dearly beloved son. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of their sins. And the Apostle Paul repeats that again in 1 Corinthians 11. So, brothers and sisters, I give that to you because we are called to be covenant keepers just like the people of Israel were called to be covenant keepers. Because we've been invited into a covenant relationship with our Maker, He has graciously brought us into 
a covenant relationship with himself. So, what are the elements of covenant keeping for you and me? If we look at Nehemiah chapter 10, we learn what they were for the people of Israel. Let me break it down for you very simply. First of all, there is the motivation for keeping covenant. You say, well, what was the motivation for Nehemiah and the people of Israel to keep covenant that they kept breaking? Well, you've got to go all the way back to chapter 1 in Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, <clears throat> steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The motivation for the people of Israel was God's covenant love established with them. <clears throat> That's what motivated Nehemiah to keep calling the people back. We've broken covenant with God so many times, but God hasn't broken covenant with us. Come back to his steadfast love. So what is it for you that motivates obedience? What motivates you to, to obey? What motivates you to be a covenant keeper, a covenant-keeping Christian? John Colquhoun, Puritan, in his book, Treatise on the Law and Gospel, writes these words. <clears throat> when a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief in his love revealed in the gospel, when he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, when he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, he shows that he is under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. When his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his frame and duties, in other words, when his hope of God being merciful is based upon how good of a job he's been doing during that week, and not by discoveries of the freeness and riches of redeeming grace offered to him in the gospel, or when he expects eternal life not as the gift of God through Christ, but as a recompense or a reward from God for his own obedience and suffering, he plainly shows that he is under the power of a legal spirit. What motivates you in keeping covenant with God? The second element of covenant keeping is separation. It says of the people of Israel, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. See, friends, in covenant, there's always a call for God's people to separate themselves. Come apart. Come away. To separate yourself from the peoples of the lands and to separate yourself to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, to Christ, and to his law. Separation from, separation to. Think about it. When you enter into the covenant of marriage, what are you doing? You're separating yourself from having intimate relationships with all others in the land. I will have no intimate relationships with anyone else but my wife. And you are separating yourself unto the one you are marrying. 
You see, covenant love always calls for separation. And people of God, we need to understand that while living in the world. We are called to be separate from the world. We are called to be distinct from the world. We are called not to follow the practices of a godless world. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. That's what God kept calling his people to. Israel, I want, you to, I want you to be a light to the nations around you. I don't want you to become like the nations around you. I want you to be different in the most beautiful way. I want you to be holy unto me. And they didn't get that. And much of the time, we don't either. Covenant love assumes that there is a relationship of separation, not in a legalistic fashion, but out of love and devotion to the one who has chosen you, who has chosen you to belong to him. You go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's not just about marriage. That's yoking yourself to unbelievers, to people who don't love Yahweh. Uh, yoking yourselves in a partnership agreement with people who have totally different values than you have. Adopting their values, adopting their perspectives on life. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? What, a, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. Separation. The third, the third element of uh, being a covenant-keeping Christian or a covenant-keeping Jew in Nehemiah's day was that of declaration. Declaration. Notice what they say. All who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. What does that mean? Well, it means we agree that if we mess up with this covenant, we will take the consequences upon ourselves that a gracious and loving and caring God might bring upon us. A curse and an oath to walk in God's law given by Moses and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. What are they doing? They're declaring their intentions. They're declaring their intentions publicly. Again, this is where we get our example for declaring one's intentions in marriage. I, Gary, take you, Jennifer, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. It's a declaration. It was a declaration that I made in 1975, and everybody who was there witnessed it. And by the way, for those who don't believe in church membership, I would suggest to you to think again, because I see here the declaration that we are making ourselves accountable. You, you can count on us. Now, they broke it, just as we break covenant. They had to ask for forgiveness, just as we have to ask for forgiveness. But when I find lists like this of, of the names of men and their sons and their daughters and their families signing a document saying, we will subscribe ourselves to this covenant... I see great value in that. There's great value in biblical precedent for the practice of declaring and signing your name to a covenant. And then lastly, the implications of being a covenant-keeping Christian. Well, there are several that we see here in these verses. First and foremost was the keeping of God's law, the Torah. 
There's a lot of focus on the Torah in, these, in this chapter, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're basically saying, we're going to keep the law. Verse 28, they separated themselves to the law of God. Verse 29, to walk in God's law given by Moses. Again, verse 29, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, his rules and statutes. Verse 34, as it is written in the law. Verse 36, as it is written in the law. And so, being a covenant-keeping Christian is, is, is there's some response, some significant response to the commandments of God. I have entered into a covenant. I have been invited into covenant by God. God initiated it. God invited me into this covenant relationship. God says, I want, I want you to be married to me for eternity. And there are some implications to that. Just as in marriage, there are implications in marriage covenants where I can count on my wife and she can count on me. I'm not free to do whatever I want to do in covenants. And when you're in covenant with God, you're not free to do whatever you want to do. You're to keep covenants. So there's the keeping of God's law. Now, we won't go into it, but uh, there are basically two major problems that God's people get into when, they, when they're trying to figure out what to do. What is a Christian's response to God's commandments and laws and statutes? One is legalism. And a legalist just essentially takes, takes a core of God's law and just keeps wrapping it with more and more fences and barriers and walls. Our, our neighbor up in Michigan, he has a big garden. And he's always bringing tomatoes and zucchini squares. You know, watermelons and all kinds of stuff over to our house. And he has an electric fence around that because there's, there are deer, more deer than there are people in Anakama right now, I think. And then a legalist would put another fence around that fence and another fence around that fence to protect the garden, to protect the law. That's what a legalist does, legalism. And Christians can be legalists, friends. You can be a Christian legalist. Where you say, I believe in Jesus, but I really do believe that my standing with God is fundamentally based on how well of a, how good of a job I do this week. And I will judge you if you don't live up to my standards of what I think is righteous. That's a legalist. Um, a legalist is, is essentially a magnified policeman. Um, I have a cute little cartoon character here. Of a, there you go. There's the legalist view of God. He's the magnified policeman who's watching your every move. And therefore, you're watching other people's moves, and you are measuring yourself and other people based upon performance of keeping laws. Now, at the other end of the spectrum is antinomianism, big word, antinomos, uh, against the law. The law doesn't apply to me because I'm a Christian, saved by grace. Praise God, I'm saved by grace. The law has no bearing on my life anymore. I am free to be me. God loves me the way I am, and therefore I'm going to be who I am the way I am. And I'm going to make my own lifestyle choices based upon freedom. And so antinomian for me, if, if the legalist is the magnified policeman, then the antinomian is essentially the, the hippie parent with love children who essentially just wants them to grow up to be happy and to, to do whatever they want to do and make their own choices with no, guide, no guidelines, no restrictions. That's antinomianism, and that can be guilt. Christians can fall into that as well. I, I, 
I don't, I don't really have to worry about these commandments. I mean, Ten Commandments, they're nice, but praise God, I've, I'm free in Jesus to make my own decisions and to make my own choices. Well, those are both wrong. Those are both wrong. And of course, the answer for the Christian is not legalism or antinomianism, but to be a covenant keeper, a covenant man, a covenant woman, out of response to my heavenly Father who has called me into this relationship. One of the other implications for the Jews was intermarriage. Uh, They were making a mess of things. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They were intermarrying. This is not not an ethnic issue. This is a spiritual issue. Marrying someone who has not separated themselves from the false gods and the sinful practices of the godless nations unto Yahweh. Saying, you know, we're willing to marry whoever. Now, we obviously live in a dating culture where the future son-in-law or the daughter-in-law just simply shows up and is introduced to the family. And if they're pretty or handsome, if they can hold down a job, if our child is happy, because that's what's most important is our child's happiness, then it's assumed that mom and dad will be happy too. And yet I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, if you are Christian parents and if your son or daughter is a follower of Jesus, if they are making a commitment to marry someone who does not know, love, and worship Christ, Nehemiah here is telling God's people that it will impact every other aspect of their life. It is a momentous decision. I believe with all my heart, biblically, and pastoring for 40 years, that the son or daughter who is most wise will seek godly counsel from godly parents, and Christian parents who are wise will develop a relationship with their son or their daughter that will cause them to desire the wisdom and counsel of mom and dad. I fear that we make a huge, huge mess by allowing, by by acquiescing, I, I'm not, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be too far from being in agreement with planned marriages as you have in India. The divorce rate is so much lower among Christian Indian families than we have in America. But anyway, intermarriage, you're basically saying, doesn't matter, don't care, doesn't matter who you marry, as long as my son or daughter's happy and makes lots of money. And uh, the warning from Nehemiah, I think, is pretty strong. And then Sabbath. They weren't remembering observing the Sabbath as holy. And that topic deserves a whole lot more attention than I can do it on a Sunday morning. But I really, I, I, I intend, I'm, I'm, my intention in the new year in 2019 is to either bring some messages on Sabbath or as a, a, a bigger piece. I would just read you this quote from um, another book from sabbatical, A.J. Swoboda, Subversive Sabbath. Actually, this is a book that Judd just gave me recently. Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just do not know how to sit with God anymore. We have come to know Jesus only as the Lord of the harvest, forgetting he is the Lord of the Sabbath as well. I really believe we need to give a lot more thought to that 
as Christians. That's where antinomianism has crept into our view. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not, do not, do not. And also honor the Sabbath. Yeah, that's, that's negotiable. And then lastly, the last area implication for them was tithing. They weren't bringing the tithes. And so you have an extended call here from verses 35 to 39 on, on trusting God enough to bring the tithes, the first fruits to the Lord. Well, then you get to chapters 11 and 12. <clears throat> And you have listing of people, leaders, priests, Levites. Then the dedication of the wall and a huge celebration like Celebrate 50 next week. Gladness, thanksgiving, singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. Very similar to what we'll be doing next Sunday. You'll each be receiving either a cymbal, a harp, or a lyre <laughs> when you walk in here next week. <clears throat> That'd be pretty cool. Nehemiah appoints two great choirs. They get up on the wall and they sing and they give thanks. And they could hear the rejoicing far away. It was that intense. And God's people are called to be loud, joyful celebrators. And next Sunday, we're going to do that. Then you get to chapter 13 very quickly. We've got to wrap it up. Otherwise, the 20 to 1 odds are going to win the day. <laughs> Nehemiah has found out that some of the people have already broken covenant. It doesn't take long, does it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. All we like sheep have gone astray. And Nehemiah gets angry, and he says in verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. My goodness. <laughs> Nehemiah, you've lost it. You've gone over the edge. I made them take an oath in the name of God. This is a second oath. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, <clears throat> king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there is no king like Solomon. He was beloved by his God. God made him king. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. And you read this, you say, Nehemiah, you're losing it. And I would counter that and say, was he really? Or was he zealous for the holiness of God in the lives of his people? Righteous anger, righteous frustration. Earlier in the chapter, Nehemiah throws Tobiah and Tobiah's furniture out of the condo that Tobiah had made for himself in the temple. Can you think of someone else who threw furniture? See, friends, this is nothing but holy zeal at the end of this book. The takeaway for me from all of this is we are not called to be nice. We are called to be holy and it is fitting and appropriate for God at times to rebuke his people in their sin with righteous anger in order to get our attention. Friends, God isn't nice. God is holy. God is righteous. God is compassionate. God is merciful. God expresses steadfast love. But I would never call God nice. And there are times when the people of God will be stirred in their spirits by the Holy Spirit of God to express righteous anger. See, there's the false notion that Christians should be the nicest people on the face of the earth. I can't find that in here. Are you familiar with the term milk toast? 1920s cartoon character, Casper Milk Toast. He was a spineless creature, timid, really didn't take a stand on anything. I can't find any milk toast characters in the Bible who are commended for being spineless. Nehemiah wasn't spineless. Nehemiah had a spine. He was humble, he was meek, but he wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade. 
Last observation, Nehemiah's prayer at the end. Remember me, oh my God. He says it three times. Remember me, oh my God. By the way, if you want to know the correct way to use OMG, that's it. I get unsettled by the fact that Christians today are very loose in using that phrase. And I believe it's dishonoring to God. If you say, oh my God, make sure you're talking about the person of God. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your love. Remember me, oh my God, for good. See, Nehemiah was a humble man who sought to serve the Lord faithfully. Nehemiah, I'm sure, got to the end of his life and wished he had done more. Oh, I wish I had done more. And as a almost 66-year-old man, I look back at my life and say, oh Lord, I wish I would have done more. I wish I could have done more. But he is humble enough and bold enough at the same time to say, Lord, please remember, in the midst of everything else that's occupying your time and running the universe, because I'm in covenant with you, Lord God, would you remember me, please? Please remember me, according to my humble efforts. Brothers and sisters, therein lies your hope and your rest, the assurance that God does and will remember his own. Isaiah 49, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Amen. I did it. (laughs) You're sitting there saying, why can't you do that every week? Covenant. In a couple of minutes, we are going to share in the Lord's table as a reminder of God's covenant with us through Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Brothers and sisters, this morning, as you take the bread and the cup, would you use it as an opportunity to enter back into covenant with God? Say, Lord, I want to be a covenant-keeping Christian. I want to honor you with the way I live. Let's pray together. This morning as you're sitting here, many of you have been in covenant with Christ from that time in your life, whether it was a day that you can remember or a season of life where you first came to know his great, great love and grace. You heard his voice, your spirit was quickened, your heart was stirred, and you said yes. God said to you, I, I, want, I want to be married to you. I want, I want to have a relationship with you. I want, to have, I want to love you, and I love you unconditionally. And you responded and said yes. And so today is your day to, to say, Lord, I, just, I want to re-up. I want to re-up the covenant. And if you're here this morning and this is all brand new news to you, God, God is calling to you. He's graciously calling you. Come to me. 
come to me. The invitation is open. The table is, the table is prepared. I gave my life for you. The Father sent me for you. I died for you. I died to take away all your sins, to wash you clean. And I would love to have you as my child so that you can call me Father. You can call me Father. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I would invite you today to give your life to Christ. Trust him. Say, Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you. This is new for me, but I need you. This life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If I just put in a few decades of taking up space and then I'm gone, but it makes all the sense in the world if this life is about knowing my creator. Give your life to Jesus. Trust him today. Thank you, Lord, for the table. Thank you for giving us such a very simple yet profound way to remember you. Thank you for calling us to be covenant keepers by your grace. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to keep covenant with God. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. We pray in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. God's people agreed by saying...